Reformed Church. All right, well, you know what? I wanted to uh, share something with you. I, I had taught last Sunday from Hebrews chapter 9, and that was, um, we, we were talking about a topic specifically, and I thought possibly that this week we would just kind of continue along that same vein into Hebrews chapter 10. Um, so I am going to read something to you out of Hebrews chapter 10. I don't know really exactly that it is going to be necessarily a continuation of last week, but um, you know, in, in Hebrews chapter 10, there's something very interesting that's established there and that we're reminded of, and it is uh, once for all, once for all time, right? In, in the Levitical priesthood, in other words, the priesthood of the Old Testament, you see that uh, priests came into the first part of the tabernacle, right? The tabernacle, we said that was the tent that the people of Israel had, right? And that tent was divided up into two. Right into the first place, it says those priests came in daily, every single day, right, offering sacrifices and and uh, and performing ceremonial things, right, and that in 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 one aspect, right, in one symbolism, that symbolism of that thing which is done daily, right, was just a symbol of the works of men, right, works of people, right. The first covenant was about works it was about don't do this, don't do that, do this, do that, right. So it was all. It wasn't about what God had done for us it was about what we could do for him right and the weakness or the problem with the first covenant was not the covenant itself from god's part right it was the weakness the bible says the weakness of our flesh so in other words our inability to be able to keep the commandments of god in other words the ten commandments the commandments that were given on mount sinai right that moses came down and that were written on the tablets that people are very familiar with right those things even though the familiarity with that today is because people are still actually trying to live by them, right? Even though the first covenant showed, God said, I'm making, in, in, even as, as far back as Jeremiah, right? Jeremiah, which was prior to Christ's birth, right? Jeremiah said, you know, I'm, which if, I'm sure most of you know, right? Jeremiah was a prophet. And the prophet Jeremiah, which was obviously prophesying of something to come, right? That's why he was called the prophet. He said, he said there, is, there is a new covenant that God will make with his people, not, not like the first covenant, right? But a new covenant will God make with his people. He said, and you will be his people and he will be your God. But he said a new covenant he's making, making the first covenant obsolete. In other words, replacing it, right? There was a, 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 couple, of, a couple of things that happened also that give you an understanding of why there needed to be a new covenant, right? Is because there was a new priest, Right when the Bible says that when there is a new priesthood, then there is then need by by need then or by connection there. Right there needs to be a new covenant. Right the Levitical priesthood they they oversaw the first covenant. Right and and that's why those works were done constantly. Right in that first part of that tabernacle. But it says something interesting that into the second tabernacle, the second room, if you will, of the tabernacle, only. Only the high priest went in, and he only went in there once a year, right? And, and in order for that high priest to enter into that second part, which is called the most holy place, right? Which is actually that mo most holy place. We don't have time, like Brother Matthew was saying, we don't have time to go over all of that, right? There's, pa there's past messages for that. But that most holy place, or you could probably actually listen to last Sunday's message to get some information about that, um, that, that second place was called the most holy place, and that is a symbol of heaven, right? So the, the, the first 
tabernacle, that work was done daily there. Those sacrifices were born daily. And the priests came in, uh, came in and performed that work daily. But into the second place went only the high priest. And all the priesthood that were in the first tabernacle needed to clear out. Right? Every, everyone needed to be out. And the, and the high priest went in by himself. Not without blood, the Bible says, but with, with blood for his own sins and for the sins of the people. So the first, the first tabernacle, right, could be a symbol. That's a symbol of the first covenant. The second tabernacle, right, is a symbol of the covenant that we live under today. In other words, the, the, the high priest, right, was a symbol of our high priest. So obviously this, you know, j- just to go over this briefly, you know, killing bulls and goats and, and, and calves, right? That in and of itself has absolutely no, no significance at all if it were not a symbol, right, of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, right? In other words, that, that, there was, there's no significance in killing an animal. I mean, we talked briefly last week, but it's true, right? That there are people that butcher cows in the United States and around the world every day of the week, right? And there's no deep symbolism in that, right? It's just people killing uh, animals to eat, right, so that we can have beef in the supermarket. So, so what is the symbolism under the old covenant of killing an animal, right? There's, there, there must be something because it, it had some deep meaning, but obviously the only meaning of that was the first covenant and the second covenant. The only significance behind killing an animal was because it was an, ex- a, an example or a symbol or a figure of Christ that was to come, right? Now, in Hebrews chapter 10, um, he goes a little, quite deep into it, but we'll, we'll start. Uh, we won't, we're not going to go very, very deep into it, but we'll start on Hebrews chapter 10 and in verse number um, 22. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse number 22. It says, and we're reading from a King James Version. It says, and almost all things are by the law purged. Uh, purged is also cleansed, right? Cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no remission, right? So obviously, he says that all things, all things were uh, in the tabernacle were purged or cleansed by blood. What could that be a symbol of, right? That all things were cleansed by blood for without the shedding of blood or without, I mean, think of it a second, right? The shedding of blood is talking about death, right? So what he's saying there is without death, there is no remission. In other words, without death, there is no forgiveness. It doesn't mean that God was instituting that if you kill a sheep, you have forgiveness of your sins. It was the only significance that that had is that, that it was a symbol of Christ. In other words, the, the gospel that's preached to us today, right? We don't, we don't get preached the gospel that says, you know, that we have to follow this ritual and that ritual and you have to bring animal sacrifices and we have to kill bulls and goats and we have to take the blood of a goat and the blood of, or the blood of a bull and bring it and put it upon right by the altar, right? That's not anything that we teach. Today we teach that we have the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus Christ, right? So the, but the gospel that's preached to us, the Bible says, is the same gospel that was preached to them. People normally think that it was one thing that they were learning and another thing that we're learning today, but it, it wasn't, right? It never has been. In other words, when the Lord was talking to, through the prophets, through the prophet Isaiah, through, through David, right, through King David, through the prophet Jeremiah that we mentioned, through Ezekiel, right, through all of these prophets, and even the law itself, the law, and even through Moses, right, the, the scripture, right, the, even under the old covenant, that testified about Jesus Christ, right? So much so that when Jesus was talking to the two men on the road to Emmaus, right, after his resurrection, he was teaching them what the scriptures, in other words, what the, what the Old Testament 
testified about him. And it said their heart burned on the inside of them. In other words, they were moved in their heart. Like, wow, look at this truth. Look at the things that this man is telling us. So what he was teaching them was out of the Old Testament, but yet that was testifying about him. So, so the gospel that's preached to us today was the same gospel about Jesus Christ that was preached to them. In other words, gospel is the good news about what Jesus has done for us. The gospel is not the good news we said about the fact that you can have hope for tomorrow. The gospel is not, you know, don't worry about it, it's going to be okay. The gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ. In other words, there is no good news if Jesus did not come, right? There is no hope for us if Jesus did not come. You, you cannot have an ex, a good, expect, a solid expectation of good for you in the future without Jesus, right? Because that's like shooting dice, right? Without Jesus Christ, you have no assurance. Without Jesus Christ, you're hoping tomorrow is going to be, but not hoping in a biblical sense. Hope from the Bible is a sure expectation, but you can't be sure of tomorrow. And people say that, right? Well, no one can be sure about tomorrow. Well, that's a lie. If you know Jesus, you can have a sure expectation of good for tomorrow. Well, how can you be so sure? Because my expectation is not based on what God is going to do. And if you could hear this, right? The expectation of the Christian should not be on what God is going to do. The expectation that we should have in our mind is based on what Christ did. Not what he's going to do, but what he did, right? The reason why you can be sure of what you have is not because of what you think God is going to give you, but because of what God has already done and already provided to us, right? Listen, one of the greatest things that you will ever learn as a Christian that will open up your heart to everything that God provided to us through Jesus Christ is to be able to learn, Lord, it's not about what you're going to do, it's about what you've already done. The second coming about, of Jesus Christ is not even about sin, right? The second coming of Christ, right, it says that he will come a second time apart from sin. Jesus is not coming the second time to provide anything for us. And I know that might seem a little weird to people, but where in all of Scripture, New or Old Testament, has anyone ever read that God will come in his second coming to provide anything to us, right? The second coming of Jesus Christ, right? And I know some people would say, well, well, the Bible does talk about, right, that upon Jesus' second coming, we'll be all caught up to meet him in the air. He says, and we'll receive our heavenly body, right? But, but listen to what we're saying, right? You're, what you're receiving, in other words, life, you're, a heavenly body is an eternal body, right? That's all that that means. Heavenly and earthly. Earthly things are temporal. Heavenly things are eternal, right? So when we talk about a heavenly body, all that we're talking about is an eternal body. In other words, a body not like unto this one, that is, this body is perishable. Right? In other words, this body wants to or, is, or does, I should say, right, does decay. Right? But the life that God gives us, right? Romans talks about that, that if the spirit that dwells in you is the same spirit of God, right? that that spirit that, that dwells in you can give life to your mortal body. In other words, mortal meaning subject to decay. Right? Mortal meaning of this world earthly body, right? We all have earthly bodies. So even though this earthly body wants to wrinkle, wants to get old, wants to decay, right? It, it, just like everything else in this world, it says that the life that we have in us, which is called eternal life, right? Christians normally across the board agree with that. Do you have eternal life? Yes, I do. They may not know exactly what that means when they say I have eternal life. Eternal doesn't mean I'm going to live in heaven. Eternal means forever. Eternal life. I have life 
forever, right? So, so when you ask someone, do you have eternal life? You're asking them, do you have the life in you that is forever? And if they say yes, they ought to know what they're meaning, right? They ought to know what they're saying. The life of God that we have in us is, well, exactly that, what I just said, right? It's the life of God, right? It's not the life of, of this person or that person. It's not the life or the experience of this Christian or that Christian. It's the life of God, right? It's not the life of Jose. It's not the life of Michael. It's the life of God. The life you have in you is a life that is of God. God, as we all know, does not die, right? So in other words, it is an eternal life that we have received, his eternal life on the inside of us, right? So so the, when Jesus, uh, when it said actually in verse number, where did we leave off? We left off in um, 22. Let's read that again. It says, and almost all things are by the law purged with blood, and without the shedding of blood, um, there is no remission. Without death, right, there is no forgiveness of sin. We know that th- today through Jesus Christ, right? Um, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things of the heavens, in other words, the tabernacle, even the temple that was built, right, were patterns of heavenly things. They weren't, they weren't in and of themselves heavenly things. They were just patterns of heavenly things. They were shadows of heavenly things. That means that when the truth has come, there is no need anymore for the pattern, Right? Right? If, if you remember, um, the, the, Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, right? So, and, and he was asked, you know, when will the kingdom of heaven come? And he, he told them, he said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. In other words, you don't look at it come and then say, oh, there it is right there. It's coming finally, right? But Jesus said, but the kingdom of God is within you. Now, that confuses some people, but it shouldn't be so confusing, right? The kingdom of God is the reign of God. Reign, many literal translations will translate the word kingdom reign because it is called the reign of God or the reign of heaven. So, and all that simply means is where the will of God is done perfectly. In other words, in in the highest heaven where God is, right, everything that's done there is done according to the will of God. Nothing happens in heaven that is not according to his will. Well, that reign of God, in other words, that, that, that uh, across-the-board preeminent government of God in heaven, we have that reign on the inside of us. In other words, the will of God can be done in us in our lives today. In other words, we, we live on the earth, yes, but that's why we can pray, right, not my will, right, but yours be done. You can say that for many things, right? If you don't know what the will of God is for, for a certain thing, you can pray and say, you know, not my will, Lord, but yours be done. If you know the will of God, right, you don't have to pray that the will of God be done. If you know, in other words, if you don't feel well, you don't have to ask God to see, Lord, do you want me well? Well, he died on a cross so that you can be well, right? You don't, you don't have to wonder, is it God's will to make me well? Almost like, like, Lord, I'm not really sure, you know, because I see some people get healed and some people don't. Maybe that means that you don't want everyone to be well. Like, what, listen, when we say stuff like that, and some people do, and that's fine for now because it's just you don't really know. But what you don't know is you don't understand, the Bible says, you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God. In other words, we, don't, we have not yet understood when we pray stuff like that, we haven't understood what it is that Jesus Christ came to do, right? We haven't seen that, right? And let, let's keep going, and we're going to get there this morning. Um, in, in verse number 
23, let's read that. It says, it says it was necessary, it was therefore necessary that the patterns of the things in the heavens should be purified with these. In other words, that the earthly things should be purified with the blood of animals. It says, but heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. So in other words, those earthly animal sacrifices were just a pattern or a figure of a greater sacrifice, which obviously we know what, who, the sacrifice of who. Verse 24 says, for Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands. In other words, Jesus Christ did not, did not die on the cross and then, right, upon his resurrection, enter into the physical tabernacle and walk in through that veil, right, uh, that led into the second tabernacle. Instead, the veil that separated, we said last Sunday, right, the veil that separated the first tabernacle from the second is a symbol actually of the flesh of Jesus Christ. In other words, every time a high priest walked through that veil and into that second, the, every time the high priest walked in from the second, from the first to the second tabernacle, he, he was symbolizing the death of Jesus Christ because the Bible says that the, that, that veil was a symbol of his flesh. In other words, the body of Christ broken so that we could enter into heavenly things, right? If we said the second tabernacle was a picture of heaven, the first tabernacle was a picture of, of the works of men, and the high priest, in order to enter in, all the works of men had to be stopped. In other words, that first covenant needed to be, right, needed to be made obsolete. And a second, tab a second covenant, right, when, when he entered into that second tabernacle, a second covenant would be established, and it was established how? By the, 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 the uh, renting of his flesh, in other words, by the death, his death on the cross. So you enter in from leaving the works of men, and you walk into heavenly things through his work and not your own. Right? The veil is, is a symbol of his flesh. Every time that high priest went through that veil, right, it was screaming about the, the, the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. That, that's the only symbolism that it had. Now, granted, every time the high priest went in, every high priest probably wasn't thinking about that. Right? They just did it. They got accustomed to just the ritual and the thing, right? But it was most definitely, right, that, that's, that's why it was there. That's what was preaching to them, part of what was preaching to them about the truth about Jesus. So it says that Christ didn't enter into the holy place made with hands or that earthly tabernacle, which were just figures of the true. It says, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. In other words, Jesus Christ seated at the right hand of the Father is, is, is a... A, a, uh, the Bible says, I should say it like this, he's, he is our eternal high priest. So it's not something that um, Jesus has to do over and over and over again, but his one death on the cross, listen to this now, his one death on the cross was for all time. Now, the all time was not all time going forward. It was all time going forward and backward, right? All time going forward and backward. When, when Jesus said that Abraham, Abraham, which was in the book of Genesis, right? At the beginning of time, right? When, when the Bible says that, Je, that in Genesis that Abraham rejoiced to see the day of Jesus, right? It, it's not saying that he rejoiced to see that Jesus was born, right? In other words, if Jesus would not have died for the sins of the people, Abraham would not have rejoiced in anything. What's there to rejoice about Jesus? Oh, God came from heaven to earth to visit us to say hello and to go back, 
right? There's nothing to rejoice about. Well, thank God he came and he said hello and left us in the same condition that he came to visit us in, right? The only significance or the only thing that would make Abraham so far before the death of Jesus rejoice ahead of time is because Abraham, right, was taught just like the prophets were taught, just like Ezekiel was taught, just like David in the Psalms wrote about how Christ would be crucified, right? All of these men and women were taught about the Christ that was to come and what he would do. So the rejoicing that Abraham had was a rejoicing to see Jesus Christ and him crucified, right? Today, ahead of the cross, right, we look back and we rejoice in what? The exact same thing, Jesus Christ and him crucified. In other words, the death of of, of Jesus was for all time, right? For all time. It says, says, um, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Verse 25. It says, yet, uh, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of another. So, in other words, that, that, that uh, ceremony or that ritual of the high priest entering into that second most holy place, he did that every single year. And every single year that he went in there, there was a remembrance of sin. In other words, there was a recollection of the sins that people had committed. Every single year, there was a remembrance of that. They would recollect that because he was going in there for that precise purpose, right? He was walking in with a sacrifice for his sins and for the sins of the people. So that was recognizing, hey, you need this constantly, right? But it was also to be a remembrance of a Christ that was to come. Now, there's an interesting thing that's taught here that we should be cognizant of, right? Jesus does not perform the same sacrifice every year, right? In other words, the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ was done once for all time, right? Once for all time. So, so the reason that it was done once for all time, right? We, we, should, re- we, should, we should remember that, that because he offered his body once for all time, there, we don't have to live with the same consciousness of sin that these people live with. In other words, Christians and non-Christians, many people live very conscious of what they do wrong, right? Sin means wrong, right? People live with a heavy consciousness of what they've done wrong, and when they do something wrong, especially Christians, they want to feel bad about what they've done. And and they can't move ahead unless they feel bad about what they've done for an indeterminate amount of time, right? In other words, Christians most of the time don't know what to do if they don't feel guilty. But, but we, there's something wrong and broken about the way that we think. If, 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 the, if the sacrifice of the high priest, right, brought a remembrance of sin year after year after year, if, 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 the, if the, sac- the daily sacrifices of the priests right, were signified the works of men, and, and every time that that high priest went in, that was a symbol right, of, or recognition of the sins of men every single year, why do we live with the same consciousness and the same remembrance of our sin like they did? Almost like nothing happened. Right? Almost like, like Jesus didn't accomplish what he said he was going to accomplish. But in other words, we live with a consciousness of sin that we ought not to have. And, and we, we've said this before and we'll say it again. What are you supposed to feel when you do something wrong? Right? Because I used to think just like that. Well, like I'm confused. If I do something wrong, what am I supposed to feel good about what I just did? Like, what am I supposed to feel? Well, you, well what you're supposed to remember Right? When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, he says, in other words, what we're supposed to remember is Christ and him crucified when you do something wrong. In other words, you're not supposed to feel good or bad about what you've done. You're supposed to recognize what he did for what you did. 
In other words, what Christ has already done for what you just finished doing, right? Listen, the way that we repent, quote-unquote, of our sin, it doesn't make any sense, right? We feel good or or we, we feel better about what we've done as long as we can forget it, right? In other words, if you can't recollect it, then you feel okay about that. But the minute it comes back and you remember it, oh, you feel bad about what you've done all over again. And and then there's a a thing like, well, if it's something real, real bad, you probably can never forget that. But if it's something that's smaller, well, you can can forget that. It's okay. We have a warped way of of dealing with things that we do wrong. Or we we try to feel so bad. Listen now, because I'm not talking to you about anything that's strange to people, right? We try to feel so bad about what we've done, bad enough to hopefully keep us from doing it again. Listen, you you can survey people, okay? That does not work. Feeling bad about what you've done does not prohibit you from doing it again, or at the very minimum from thinking about doing it again, which is just as bad as doing it, right? In other words, the, the, the... thinking about doing something or doing it, right, doesn't, doesn't free you from anything, right? You're still in the same boat. But there is this thing called the renewal of our mind, right, that if we would allow the Lord to renew our mind to what Christ has done, then, then what happens when you do something wrong, right? Because our mind is not fully renewed. Our mind is not uh, fully uh, perfected like we are in our spirit, right? Our, our mind and our flesh is still not perfect. So, so you will still do things that are wrong. So what should be taught to the church, to people, about when they do something wrong? Remember what Christ did for you. Remember what he finished. He said, he said um, Paul had this very problem years and years and years ago, right? That people would say that the gospel that he was preaching was, was basically preaching that people had a license to sin. Because the minute, watch this thinking, the minute you tell people that they don't have to feel bad about, what their, about their sin, they're just going to keep doing it and doing it over, over and over again. But he said, how can we, who have died to sin, live any longer in it? In other words, that's good news. <laughs> what he's saying is, how can we, who have been freed by the blood of Jesus Christ, what, how would you think that we would have a propensity to want to sin over and over again, but instead our mind would be renewed to the freedom that we have, to the liberty that we have been given from sin and death, and we would begin to exercise and live in that liberty that we've been given. In other words, if you learn that you're free, you will begin to live like a free man, right? If you're taught that you're always in bondage, you will live like a slave, right? And that's why many people still today, Christians, that have been given the liberty, that have been given and received the finished work of Jesus Christ, still live most of their lives like they're slaves, right? Still live like, like, like people that, have, that are in a cage with the door open, but still choose to stay in it. Why? Because their, their, their eyes, listen, and this is so simple. It's the easiest thing to understand. When you feel guilt, when you feel condemnation, which Romans 8 tells us that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, but when you feel guilt and condemnation over what you've done, answer this question. Are you thinking about what you did or about what he did? It's so simple. Are you thinking about what you did or are you thinking about what he did? Oh, I feel so bad, Pastor Jose. I mean, this is like the fifth time I've done this. I've hurt myself. I've hurt my family. I've heard this one. I've heard that. Are you thinking about what you did or are you thinking about what he did? Is, is it wrong to, to ask people to forgive you? Of course not, right? If you hurt someone, right, then, then ask for that person to forgive you. But you don't have to ask God to forgive you, right? Because if you have received the finished work of Jesus Christ, you have received the forgiveness of your sins. Like, that, that is 
among the most basic principles of Christianity is to be able to understand I'm forgiven. Why am I forgiven? Because Jesus Christ died on a cross once for all time. That will answer just that one single thing. Once for all time. Once for all time. He doesn't enter into that second part year after year after year. He doesn't go into heaven every single year for us. He doesn't come down, die on a cross, and go back again every year. But why doesn't he do that? Ask yourself that question. What's the difference between the high priest going in and performing this every single year or Jesus Christ having come once and never come again to die on a cross? Because that death was once for all time. Does that not answer the question, am I forgiven of my past or my present or my future sin? How much of my sin am I forgiven? Well, Jesus did this 2,000 years ago before you were ever born, right? So, uh, of course, that if you think it affects your past sin, how does it not affect your future sin, right? It, it, the death of Jesus Christ is affecting your future sin from the day you were born. From the day that you began to sin, that the blood of Jesus was cleansing you of your future sin. It has always been your future sin, right? And even, even people that lived, like Abraham, righteous, Right, lived righteously even under the, under the old covenant, they lived by the same faith in the same sacrifice because it's what? Once for all time. Let, let, let me show you this, and this will, this will continue to teach you. He says um, in verse 25, it says, nor yet that he should offer himself often as the high priest entered into the holy place every year with the blood of others. Verse 26 says, for then, he, uh, must, uh, for then must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world. In other words, if, if, the, if the blood of Jesus Christ right, did not cleanse for all time, then it was needful for people to even have faith in Jesus even under the old covenant he had to continually die on a cross. He would have had to suffer from the beginning of time because, in other words, the, the, blood of, the death of Christ was once for all time. If that's not true, then in order for the blood of Jesus Christ to work, quote-unquote, he would have needed to have died over and over again from the beginning of time in order for people like Abraham and David and all these men and women who believed in Jesus before his, 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 his coming, right, before his death on the cross, he would have needed to have done that all throughout from the, from the very beginning up until now. It would have had to have been a perpetual dying of Christ. But the fact that it's not like that, the fact that it says that it's once for all time should teach us what? That it's, it's, whenever I am feeling bad about something that I have done in the past, right? Because there are people today that still live with guilt today over something that they've done years ago. They still feel bad about it today. Who are you thinking about? What you have done or about what he did? And that's not a small thing. That's an enormous thing for people to understand. Enormous. Because even though Christians know that there, is, there should be no condemnation in your mind. In other words, condemnation means guilt and fear of punishment for sin, right? So, so the reason why we know that we don't have to feel condemned is because Christ was condemned, right? God is not like, oh, he was really hard on sin in the Old Testament, but today, thank God, right? He's not hard on sin anymore. No, no. God has always been hard on sin. He's always punished sin, always. And he, that will always be a reality in the mind of God, right? Punishment for sin. But the only reason why we aren't punished today is because our sin has already been punished, right? The, the high priest entered in, entered into that tabernacle with blood, right? But, but the, the, the awesome thing is that when you understand that it was our sins that he was carrying on the tree, 
right? First Peter 2.24 talks about that, right? But it wasn't, it wasn't his own sin that he was taking to the cross. It was our sin that he was carrying. So in other words, if our sin was punished in his body on the tree, if he became a curse for us, right, then do we have to feel condemned? How could, I, how could you feel? In other words, there's something wrong with people's minds then because if I feel condemned, but Jesus was already condemned for my sin, then I don't understand his condemnation. You follow where the lack of knowledge is? The lack of knowledge is in the suffering of Christ. When you understand the suffering of Christ, then you understand that you don't have to suffer. When you understand the, 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 the purposes of why Christ did what he did, then you begin to receive, right, what he provided through that sacrifice, right? Very simple, very simple. So it says in, um, in, in verse 26, again, let's read it. For then must, uh, must he often have suffered since the foundation of the world, but now once, and that's so, so important, once in the end of the world, he has appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, right? That high priest, once for all time. And, it, and, and as it has appoint, been, and as it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this judgment, Right? And that's an important thing, right? Christians use that verse to say, that's why I have to die. Because it is appointed unto me once to die. But look at what is written before and look at what, what's written after. In other words, look at the context of why he's, he's writing that. He said, just as it is appointed to die once, so Christ died once for you. In other words, he died your death. <laughs> right? He died your death. Death, death is a wage. Death is a payment that is owed to God. The wages, Romans 6, 23, I believe it is, right? The wages of sin, sin, the wage, the payment, right? The debt that is owed to God for the sins of men, right, is death. That is the wage that is due him, right? That wasn't, Christ didn't pay us for our sin. He paid God for his sin, right? The debt was to God, was not to men, right? God, I, I don't owe Jesus, right? Jesus didn't pay me. He paid God, right? He didn't pay me. He paid God for, for my sin, right? So the fact that Jesus paid God for my sin, right, what I, what, I, what I should be doing, right, is understanding, okay, if you paid, and this is too much to go into today, but death, right, death by itself is something that you can learn an awful lot about our deliverance from, right? He has delivered us from sin and death, right? And we don't live anymore under the law of sin and death, but the Bible says that we live under the law of the spirit of life, in Christ Jesus. In other words, we have this thing that we started talking about at the beginning, right? We have this thing called eternal life that sh we should understand as the antithesis, if that's even the word, right? The antitype, in other words, the opposite of death. Eternal life is the opposite of death, right? God did not die on a cross to give us death. He, he died on the cross. In other words, he didn't die on the cross to give us corruption. He died on the cross in order to give us life, Right? So if he's given us life, right, then that means that, that the death that Christ died was my death, right? It was my death that he, was, that he, cut, that he carried on that cross. It was my death that he took, I should say. Um, in verse number, I think, is it 28, 27? Right? And, and as it is appointed unto men to die once, but after this judgment, so he took our death and our judgment, right, for sin. Our death and our judgment. We know that he was judged for our sin. Jesus himself said, right before he was going to the cross, he says, in this is the judgment of the world. In other words, he says, and what I'm going to do right now, this is the judgment of the world. And you say, well, if the whole world's sin was judged 
by Jesus Christ on the cross, why isn't the whole world forgiven? It's just that the whole world doesn't receive the salvation and the forgiveness that God provided. In other words, God is not imputing or holding against the world their sin. The only thing that the world does wrong that God cannot pardon is unbelief in Jesus. In other words, if God provided salvation and you don't receive it, you die in your sin. You don't have to, but you do. The church spends the majority of its time preaching to people about their sin. And as far as God is concerned, that's the last thing that the church has to be dealt with is about sin. Because that's why Jesus came. He came because of sin. And we spend all our time correcting the sins of the church, right? It it, it makes no sense. In the time that we ought to spend preaching the gospel, we, we, we spend teaching the church how they ought not to sin, right? Instead of teaching them to renew their minds so that they don't sin, to renew their minds so that they can see that they have an advocate with the Father, Jesus the righteous, we end up teaching them about what they should not do instead of teaching them what they should know, right? Not what they should not do. We don't live under the old covenant. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's about what he did. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's about what he did. In verse number 28, so Christ was offered, was once offered, so Christ was once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him um, shall he appear the second time without sin unto salvation. That's talking about his second coming. Let, let, me, let me fast forward here so we can start wrapping up. Um, if we could go quickly to Mark chapter 9 and verse number 17. Let me just show you something. Mark chapter 9 and verse number 17. Um, the disciples were surrounded by, I believe the majority of the people that were there were like the scribes and then, you know, that's part of what uh, the Bible says were around the, uh, the disciples. And a man comes with a son, his son that's demon-possessed. And it says that the, the demon has, has affected his son even from his youth where he couldn't talk right couldn't i think he couldn't hear also but i know for sure that it was that he couldn't speak either um but it said and it would uh it would tear him meaning that it would like forcefully throw him from here to there right i mean the the boy grew up being tormented right and the father with the love of his son right he loves his boy he brought them to the disciples to see if they could cast out the demon right and no matter how much they tried they couldn't so so they bring uh, Jesus said, bring him here to me, right? Bring him here to me. That's kind of the context there. So verse number 17, verse number 17, and one of the multitude answered and said, Master, I have brought unto thee my son, which has a dumb spirit. And, and wheresoever he takes him, he tears him, and he foams and he gnashes with his teeth and pines away. And I spoke to your disciples and, uh, that they should cast him out, and they could not. In verse 19, he says, and he, uh, he answered him and said, O faithless generation. Now, you have to see things in their context, right? When, when Jesus says, O you of little faith, or if he says, O faithless generation, or if he says, do you not have faith, right? What, unfortunately, what a lot of the church kind of hears, right? And, and I heard the same thing. That's all that, that my mind could go to. But the, the only place where my mind could go to is, like, I'm not believing hard enough. Like, believing what, though? Believe, believe what? Believe that the disciples can cast out the demon? Believe that Jesus can cast out the demon? Right? Listen, people that aren't even Christians, that have a, a semblance of belief in God, believe that God's powerful, that, well, yeah, if God wanted to, he can cast out a demon? Sure, sure. 
But that doesn't make it so, right? Because somebody believes that God has power, it doesn't do it, right? So, so when Jesus says, oh, faithless generation, what's he referring to? What is the faith that Jesus wants people of that time to have that had the gospel preached to them? What is the faith that God wants us to have? Why does he refer to it as a, a faithless generation? In other words, as a generation without faith. And, and all faith, and you learn this in time the more that you're here, right? Faith is about faith in Jesus. It's not faith that you're going to get a new car. It's not faith that you're going to get a better job. It's not just take a leap of faith. It's not stepping out in ignorance and believe that you're going to make it, right? That's faith in nothing. That, that's called ignorance. That's just doing something, uh, really having positive thinking that, that it's gonna make, you're going to make it through. But you don't need Jesus to do that, right? People that live in the world that don't have no Jesus at all can have that same mentality that you have. That if you believe, oh, you just gotta, you just gotta believe that tomorrow is gonna be a good day, right? Should we like eat that up when you hear somebody say that? Oh, you just gotta believe that it's gonna be all right. You gotta have hope, brother. Like, what the heck does that mean? What, what you're asking me, listen, when somebody tells you that, like, people should like open up their eyes to the things that people are wishing upon you. Just what they're saying is, have positive thinking because since you have no clue as to whether tomorrow is going to work out at all, you might as well be happy on your way there because it could really be stinky tomorrow, but in your day tomorrow could really be the worst ever. But as long as you can be happy and cheerful on your way there, at least it's not as bad, right? There's no assurance, right? The world can give you no assurance that tomorrow is going to be good. The world can give you no assurance that tomorrow is going to be better. There's no, no promises in the world, right? It's not, oh, if you get an education, you know, it's the most important thing because then you're going to be promised a good job. Ah, wrong answer. There are plenty of people with degrees and doctorates, right, that are suffering from poverty. Education is not a promise for a bright future. Money is not a promise for a bright future, right? There, there are, in this world, not a single solitary guarantee that you could hang on to and say, you know what, I know, I know that I can have a sure expectation for tomorrow. But as a Christian, right, you can have that. Why? And you can say, well, that's a pretty bold thing to say. No, it's bold, but it's true, right? What I, the expectation that I have for tomorrow is based, right, on what Christ has done. It's not what he's going to do. I don't have to ask God and say, oh, Lord, you know, if, if, if there's anything at all that you can do for me, you know, I just hope, you know, if you love me, if, you, you know, you can prove your love to me by just doing this for me. In other words, so many times people are asking God to do something, right? Lord, if you can just do something. There are people mad at God because of what supposedly God didn't do. You let my mom die. You let my, my child die. So that's why I don't serve, Lord. That's why I don't go to church. It's because my young, my young baby died, and if there was a God, then that wouldn't have happened. Right? But, but listen to that, though. In other words, people just think that the way God works is he just kind of does whatever he wants to do. If God wants to heal somebody, he heals them. If God wants to help somebody, he helps them. If God wants to make this one better, he does it. If God, in other words, that's why they call miracles or works of power, right? This, this thing happened over here, this thing happened over there. But that's not the way the kingdom of God works, right? Number one is, we said at the beginning, no one can receive the things of God without faith in the one that provided it, right? There is no receiving. In other words, he said, Jesus said, oh, faithless generation, he said here. In other words, what that means is no one can receive anything from God, including, including having a demon delivered from your young boy. No one can receive anything, even though it touches your heart. 
Even though to you, oh my God, like how would God not move if he knows, you know, the love that this dad has for his boy? So we think that the way God works is by emotion. Like if you can cry and sob hard enough or if you can show God how deep your emotion is for this thing, that God will come through and he'll do it for you. But that's not the way the kingdom of God works, right? God saw the sin problem in the world and he sent his son. Like we're not, we're not seeing things the right way. God saw the dilemma and the problem of the world and he sent his son to die on a cross to be condemned for the sins of the world, right? So in other words, listen, let, let me show you a perfect example. This dad wants to see the demon cast out of his son. It says that he's in tears. He's, I'm sure he was probably on his knees, but if he wasn't, the Bible doesn't say that, right? But he's just weeping, right? A grown man weeping in front of another grown man and saying, if you love me, if you can do anything, please deliver my son. Isn't that touching, right? Doesn't that move you, right? But God does not move like that. God doesn't look at a situation and say, oh, man, I mean, it really... It just got me, you know. I'm, I'm going to have to do something, right? Because that's not justice. That, that's, that's some emotional mess. That's not justice. That's not, that's not the way a just God works and says everyone that believes receives. Everyone that believes receives. Everyone that believes in me receives what I have provided. That's justice, right? In other words, you get because of what he did. And it don't matter if you're black, white, green, or brown, right? You receive because of what he's done. He doesn't care about your background. He doesn't care about where you've been, the side of the tracks that you grew up. Everyone that believes receives. He cares not about your education. He doesn't care if you can read or if you can't read, right? He cares that you believe in what he did for you. And when you believe in what he did for you, you receive what he did for you. Simple, simple, simple stuff. So he says, he, in verse number 20, they brought him unto him. And when he saw him straightway, the spirit tore at him again. He fell on the ground and he wallowed foaming. And he asked his father, Jesus looked at his father and said, how long has he been this way? How long has this been since it came onto him? And he said, as a child. So he's been like this for years, right? And oftentimes they said it cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. In other words, looking like to kill him, right? But now listen, listen, to, listen to what the father says. And based on what you've heard this morning, hear what he's saying wrong, right? Hear what he's saying wrong. He says, he says but if you can do anything, right? The operative word there is if you can do, Right? The problem with that is it's not looking at what he's done. And you can say, well, he hadn't done it yet. But Abraham, he hadn't done it yet either, right? Abraham was rejoicing to see Christ and him crucified and was made righteous because of his faith, right? Abraham was not made righteous because he kept the commandments, right? In other words, the Ten Commandments of Moses, the Ten Commandments weren't even given yet. Abraham was made righteous because of his faith in Jesus Christ. He rejoiced to see Christ in him crucified, right? Jeremiah rejoiced to see Christ in him crucified. Isaiah the prophet rejoiced to see Christ in him crucified. David walked around as a king, right, doing things that men in that time ought not to do, right? In other words, he walked around with a surety that he shouldn't have, right? And why, why, was he, why did David walk around with such surety despite the things that he had physically done in his life? Because he had some level of understanding of Christ and him crucified. That's why he even wrote in the Psalms about the crucifixion of Jesus. I believe, well, anyway. So, um, so he says, watch what he says, but if you can do anything, watch what he says. <laughs> Let me put this in context, right? Remember, think about Jesus hanging on a cross, 
suffering and hanging there for the sins of the people. John 3.16, that God loved the world so much that he gave his only begotten son so that anyone who believes in him, anyone, no matter who you are, believes in him, will not perish but have eternal life. He loved the world so much that he gave a physical body to his own son so his own son could be crucified and die in a human body because he knew in the heavenly body he would never die. So let's give him a human body in which he could die for the sins of my people, right? So it says, listen to what he says. If you can do anything, have compassion on me and help me. Have compassion on us and help us. There's a whole bunch of things wrong with that, but I'll call out three things real quick. If you can do anything is, is wanting to believe that God will do something. One thing that's wrong. The second thing that's wrong is have compassion on us, right? Like he hasn't already. In other words, the fact that he's standing there in a human body is the manifestation of the love of God for people. In other words, the son of God having come in a body. In, in, in Hebrews chapter 10, if you keep reading, he says, you know what, this is what the Lord says. He says, he says, sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings you had no pleasure in, but a body you have given me, and in this body I have come, and he says, I have come to do your will, O God. In other words, I have come in a physical body in order to be able to die in this body for the sins of these people, right? So the fact that he's standing there, that the Son of God is standing there in a the physical body is the very love of God that he's looking at. And he says to him, if you can have compassion on us and help us. Number one, he, he is the manifestation of that compassion, and he already did help. He already did help to the point that Abraham received, Abraham received a rejuvenation in his body, so much so that a reproductive system that didn't even work anymore produced a child, an heir for him, Isaac, right? A son of the faith that he put in Jesus Christ, right? whom we are as well, right? We are, we are sons of God or children of God because of our faith, right? The same way Isaac is called, right? But, but if you see here, the problem that he's, he's looking at is he's asking God if you can do anything. Where is it that the minds of most people go when they have a problem? Oh, Lord, I just ask you, Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do. I lost my job and I'm going to lose my house and, and, and all this stuff. They start asking God to please do something, what is it that's missing from that train of thought? What is it that's missing from that thinking? 2,000 years ago, a wooden cross and a man hanging on it, nailed to it. That's what's missing in that thinking, right? Christ and him crucified, in other words, the gospel. The gospel is the one thing that if the church can be taught, if people that don't even know Jesus can be taught the gospel, that if somebody comes to you and says, you know what, I'm so distraught, this thing happened to me, I have a son that is, that's going through all this mental agony, I have a daughter that's going through this suffering, I have a wife that's been diagnosed with this, I have this person, I'm going through this, I'm going through a divorce, I'm going to yada, 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 right? What is the answer to the problems that people come to us with? Every single sin and wrong that is in the world is in it because of sin. Before sin, there was no problem in the world. Sin came in, and along with it came death, right? Every single person that is suffering from corruption and death, from demon possession, from anything wrong in this world is suffering from the same condition. It's not cancer they're suffering from. It's sin that they're suffering from, right? In other words, it is the cancer, all that that is, is just simply a, a side effect of sin. If you, if, you can, if you can take away that problem, you take away the rest of it. 
That's why people can be healed. Doesn't that make sense to you? How is it that people can be healed? Like if a person has cancer and then, you know, by, by some work of power of God, right, they're healed. They get prayed over and they're healed, right? You don't see that all the time, right? But people get healed, right? How is it that that can happen? How is it that a person that has something and then they don't have it? They're deaf and then now they can hear. They're blind and now they can see, right? In other words, what has happened is that the effect of Christ crucified, right? In other words, the kingdom of heaven has come. That's why John the Baptist, that's what he began to teach. He said, he said, he said, people, wake up. Listen, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, Jesus, he's, he's here, he's coming, right? He was born, he's grown up, he's like right around my age, right? He, he's, he's, gonna be, he's gonna come and he's gonna die on the cross and he's gonna deliver the world from their sin, right? Deliver from what? The deliverance from sin was not a small thing. Delivering people from sin delivers them from the cause of that sin, which is death, right? In other words, everything that ails people, you can track back all the way to the cross and you can say, you know what, Lord, I'm dealing with this right now. But Lord, I, I pray that you would continue, Lord, to teach me so that I can see, Lord, the effect that, the cro- that you crucified on the cross has on my present situation. And then what you'll see is that, you know what, we have been given, watch, we have been given power, power, right? Power in this life, power to wealth, power to health. In other words, we have been given the, the power of life, right? The life of God on the inside of us. Let me show you something, how this ends. He says, but if you can do anything, verse 22, have compassion on us and help us. Listen to the response of Jesus because it's an awesome thing. I'll read it to you verbatim and then we'll break it down a little bit. Jesus said to him, if thou can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. But listen to what he's saying. The man said to him, if you can do anything, if you can do anything, right? That word can there is the same word that he uses in verse 23, which says, if you can believe. In other words, the man looks to Jesus and says, if you can do anything, right? It's the same thing today. If you look while you're praying, you look to God, right? And you say, Lord, if you could do anything for me, right? What's wrong with that? You're talking about, can God do anything instead of thanking him for what God has already done? In other words, you're making Christ having come obsolete, like it didn't even matter. You're acting and you're praying, right, like that never happened 2,000 years ago, that it's just what God can do for me in the future, right? But what God supplied unto us, right, was power on the inside of us. Ephesians 1 says that we, Paul praying for the people that had faith, he said that God would, that you would allow the Lord, he said that he would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him so that you can understand the exceeding greatness of his power that is toward us who believe, that it is according to the same power that rose Jesus from the grave and seated him at the right hand of the Father. In other words, you don't understand the inheritance you have in you. In other words, what that means is inheritance, right? You don't understand what Christ left you after his death. You don't know what you have received. Right? Therefore, when you pray, people ask God to do something. Instead of thanking him for what God has already done, they're asking God to do something. That's what he was saying here. If you can do anything, if you can do anything, love me and help me. And Jesus' answer is, if you can believe what I've done, you can do anything. Listen to that. Right? If you can believe what I've done, then you can do anything. You can do anything. 
In other words, the father was saying, right, if you, if you, if you can just help me. In other words, what, what Jesus is saying to him, if you believed what I've done, you could cast out the devil. The disciples could have cast out the devil. But their problem is that they're a faithless generation. In other words, they don't understand what I've done. And in their case, they're not understanding what I'm going to do, right? They, they're, they're not seeing it. They don't get it, right? I, I, I'll give you a verse that should ring very true, right? To, to, if you can believe, right, you can do. Actually, the, the, the more literal translation there says, if you can believe, have faith, right? If you can believe, you can do all things. Doesn't that remind you of a little verse in Philippians, right? Philippians, I'll tell you where it is. Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 13. Look at what it says. It says, I can do what? All things through Christ, which strengthens me. Strengthens me there, it just means empowers me, right? Paul was praying that you would understand the exceeding greatness of his power that it's towards you, and what is that power like? Well, it's like the same power that rose a dead corpse, right? A bloodless dead corpse from a grave and seated him at the right hand of the Father. In other words, above all, when he says seat at the right hand of the Father, he's talking about above all principality, power, dominion, and every name that is named. In other words, everything that puts fear in your bones, everything that causes you to feel afraid, to feel impotent, to feel powerless, everything in this world that makes you feel like that, the power that he's talking about is the power that seated him above all that. And Ephesians says that we have been seated with him in chapter 2. It says we've been seated with him in heavenly places. In other words, just as Christ is above these things, so I have put you above these things. So why couldn't the disciples cast him out? Why couldn't the father cast out the demon from his own son? He said if you believe, you can do all things. But because you don't believe, that's why you don't see it. And the father cried out, and he said, he said, I believe, help my unbelief. How is the unbelief of people helped? By the gospel. In other words, if we can teach people the gospel, they'll get a hold of what he's done and what he's given them. And if people can see what he's given, they will become what, what, what Peter talks about, right, in First Peter and Second Peter, right, they would become then partakers of the divine nature. They'll become partakers of what he's given. Listen, we, we, the good news about Christ, and I'll stop here, but the good news about Jesus Christ is better than we put it out there to be, right? He doesn't want you to do anything. God has never asked you to do anything, but just actually one thing. There is an obedience, and again, we've done it a hundred times. We'll do it a hundred more, right? If, if you can take some time to read the obedience is faith article that we have on our website, right? You can, if you, if you don't want to read a lot, you can listen to it, right? It has a play button at the top, and you can just hit play, and you can listen to it while you're shoveling snow, which hopefully we don't have much else right, this year. But anyway, right? you can do it while you're doing anything. You can just listen to it, right? But there is an obedience that God wants us to have. There is something that God commands us to do, and you know what that is? Have faith in what I have done. Have faith in Jesus. And you know what? He told the Father the same thing. He told them. He told them, I want you to do this. When people read that chapter, right, they don't think about Jesus is telling him to do something. But he did tell them to do something. He said, if you can believe, 
Don't tell me that if I can love you and I can help you, right, if I can have compassion on you, he said, if you can believe that I am the love of God manifest, if you can believe that I am the resurrection and the life, if you can believe what I have come to do, right? In other words, he, he was telling him to obey the commandment of God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, right? Here, love me here, know me. In other words, have faith in me. Right? That, if we could teach that, if we could help the church see the obedience, right, then we would know. You know, you, you wouldn't have to ask, well, I don't know, I, I, I know that, you know, I tried to cast this demon out and it didn't go anywhere, right? Well, the only problem that, it, that is there is that we, don't, we haven't understood fully what he's done, right? And the more and more, listen, here's the beauty of the gospel, right? No matter how little of it you know or no matter how much of it you know, you are always receiving based on your knowledge of what Christ has done, right? Because he provided something. And when you believe what he provided, let's say the only thing you, you believe is that you receive the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will live all of your life with the knowledge of the fact that you are forgiven, right? If you believe, well, it wasn't just forgiveness of my sin, but it was also health for my body. He provided power towards all things. Well, then you, you, be, you live the rest of your life in this body believing that you're forgiven and believing that you could be made well. And then there's people that continue to believe and say, well, you know what? Also the power to wealth he's been provided to me, right? Not only, right, believe that it is God that has given you the power to get wealth in Deuteronomy 8.18. Well, if you believe that, then not only do you live forgiven, right? You live with the knowledge of your forgiveness. You live with the knowledge of your wellness that you can live well. And you could also live with the knowledge of the fact that you can live wealthy having enough for every good work. Enough to give, enough to give to the poor, in, other, in, other, in, in order to give to finance the gospel, in order to give to your loved ones, right? You have that power on the inside of you. Not a money tree in you, but you have the power towards wealth. He doesn't give people money. He gives you the power to prosper. Joseph didn't have to have a dime, right? But he was just prospering no matter where he went. If he was in prison, he was made a warden. If he was, if he was in a pit, he was taken out of the pit. If he was a slave to Potiphar, he was made head of his household. If he was in Egypt, he was made second in command, right? It doesn't matter where you go, God prospers you, right? And you can call that wealth or you can call it whatever you want, but the truth of the matter is that it prospers you, right? The power of God on the inside of you prospers you to, to meet all of your needs according to his riches and glory. Listen, the, the, if you can see, Lord, it is not about what you can do it is about what you have done. It's not about what you can do. It's about what you have done. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you, Lord, for exactly that. We want to end this service, Lord, rejoicing, my God, not in what you're going to do, but in what you have already done. Lord, the certainty and the surety that can rise up in the hearts of people. Living, Lord, assured, living knowing, not living uncertain about tomorrow, not living helpless, Lord, not living impotent because of one circumstance or another. There are so many things, Lord, in this world. Your financial position, where you were born, where you're from, the way you speak, the accent you have or don't have, the eloquence that you speak with or don't. The person that you're married to or don't, the job that you have or don't, there are so many things that make people feel more secure, and there are so many things that make people feel less secure. But I thank you, Jesus, that it is the one thing that you have done that can make us all secure in the exact same way, that makes us all walk around, Lord, with our heads held high. 
and that is, Lord, that you were punished for the sins of us all and that you have put a kingdom on the inside of us, a reign, my God, that allows you to reign not just in our hearts and in our minds, teaching us the good news about the gospel, but also reign outwardly in our lives, affecting our jobs, prospering every single thing that we put our hand to, everything that we do, everything that we put any effort into, Lord. We thank you, my God, that you take over, Lord, and you work it better, and you do it better, and you glory yourself by working in and through us by the power of your Spirit on the inside of us, Lord that people that don't even know you can look at us in our jobs, that, that a, 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 a husband can look at his wife, that a wife can look at her husband and say, wow, Lord, you are working in my spouse. You are working in my kids, Lord. You're working in my job, Lord. You're prospering this company, Lord, because I am in it. You're prospering, Lord, this town because I live in it. In my home, Lord, there is prosperity, Lord, and there is wealth because of everything that you have done. Lord, we disqualify ourselves from many things because we believe that it is all about our effort. It's all about our education. It's all about who we know. My God, but it's not about who we know. It's about what we know. It's about the one that we know, Jesus Christ and him crucified for me. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, my God, for teaching us. Thank you, Lord, for bringing our hearts over and over again, back over and over again to all that you have provided, to everything that you have done. Keep teaching us, Lord, and we'll keep growing in that same truth. We love you. We praise you, my God, and we give you thanks and glory and honor to you, Jesus. Amen, amen, amen. Hallelujah. We hope you enjoyed this message from Reformed Church. If you have, please share this with someone else and help us get this unpopular message to the world. If you'd like to support Reform Church, you can do so at reforminus.com give. Also on our website, you can take advantage of our free messages, articles, and even full discipleship courses. Start reforming your mind now at reforminus.com.